Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Hey, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here. I want to say good morning to all of you watching and listening online to our North site. Good morning to you up in Port Perry. Glad that you're all with us. If you've got a Bible this morning, again, virtual or physical, no, no matter, would you turn back to the book of Hebrews chapter 11? This is week three in our new series called Take Heart, and we're focusing in on Hebrews 11. This is a series that is plunging us back into history. It's plunging us back into the amazing stories of the faithful that have gone before us, what the scriptures call in Hebrews 12, the great cloud of witnesses, all those known and unknown people, relatives and friends, patriarchs, prophets and martyrs who make up the body of Christ, who are now in heaven, cheering to God and an example to us. There in this very well-famed preached text is a call, a call of God that emanates to every single generation of those who love and follow God. The Holy Spirit from this text both whispers and also at moments shouts to each generation of God followers, take heart, do not lose faith, do not look to the side or look backwards, move forwards because in this generation I have placed you. Now, as we started learning over the last few weeks, and as we'll learn once again today, we are not just being called to be inspired by those who have gone before us, though they are given as an example of what we are called to be and look like. There is not just this call for inspiration, because inspiration enough never is enough power sort of change us and to move us forward. There is also in this passage and in the book of Hebrews, a promise of ongoing empowerment by Jesus himself who's alive, and also the promise of eternal reward if we are faithful. So don't forget that as we get going again. We have the call of inspiration, we have the promise of empowerment, and we also have the promise of reward. Now let me begin where we begin uh, this series every single week. It's in the very first verse in Hebrews chapter 11. He writes this, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. As we found out in our Easter series, actually, as we've been finding out all year, faith for Christians is not blind leaping in the dark. Faith for Christians is not crossing our fingers and hoping that this is not myth, but reality. Faith at its core is informed trust. It is factual, it is historical, but it is also relational. It is about encounter. It is about fact and encounter that make up knowledge and reality. One person who was writing on Hebrews 11, I shared this a few weeks ago, I love his summary. He says, faith means a certainty about who God is. We know that we know who God is. And then he wrote, and what God has promised. And I would add, and what he has not promised. And then acting upon his promises and his nature. Working your life out based on his word. That is what faith means. And I love that Lori last week when she was preaching said, we reject the idea that we have faith in faith. We have faith in the faithfulness of a faithful God. Now it's spring. I think all of us are happy it's here. Would you agree? Finally, it's here. And one of my great loves about spring, fall is my favorite season, but I love 
did someone just boo me? Come on now. <laughs> Fall is the best. Thank you very much. But spring, I love spring. And here's how I know that spring is upon us. It's not that the weather changes immediately. Because as we found out in Canada, in the south here of Ontario, we can have all four seasons in 24 hours. To me, the sign that spring is upon us is the birds. When you are suddenly realizing that birds are around you because they're singing so loud at four o'clock in the morning, they're like announcing to you, we are back and spring is coming. You're like, shut up. They're like, no, you've waited for this all winter. Now, what I absolutely love observing is this. I love watching robins in spring. They suddenly in this part of our country are everywhere. Do you know what I'm talking about? And most of them look like young junior high students, awkward going through puberty. They don't know how to walk. You know what I'm saying? They don't know how to fly. But I love when robins are doing their thing and they sort of crook their head sideways and they have the ability to listen into the ground to know where the worms are. But the other thing I've been observing this year more than most years is how stupidly obsessed robins are with worms at this moment. They're so excited about spring, some of them so excited about their new life and finding worms that they do not see the environment around them at all. Have you ever been driving down the road lately and a robin flies onto the road and it sees a worm and it is so excited that there is a worm and you are hurtling towards this robin, thousands of pounds of metal, and it's like, there's a worm, there's a worm, there's a worm. This is so excited. I was born for this. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to kill you. And if you do not slow down, you will kill the robin. Spring will be its beginning and its end like that. And I want you to keep that image in your mind. When I was driving to work this week, it happened twice in a period of five minutes. If I had not slowed down, and I was not speeding, by the way, if I had not slowed down, these birds would have been killed because they were so obsessed on one thing that was even good. But here's what I want us all to grab onto metaphorically as an image this morning. Where you look can bring life to you or can bring death to you. If you are so perpetually focused in one direction and you are not aware of what is happening around you, though even though that thing might be good, it can lead to your death. Now the story that we're going to look at today is all about where you're looking. So far on Sundays and in our connect groups, we've looked at people like Enoch and Sarah and of course the Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate expression of faithfulness. But today we need to go back to the beginning all the way back to the first sets of people, back to the first recorded family, back to the second recorded son of Adam and Eve, the son called Abel. In Hebrews 11.4, here's the summary of Abel's life. It says, by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he's commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel is still speaking to us, even though he is dead. Now, to understand this in context and understand what Abel did and what he did not do, we need to go back farther. We need to go before Abel. We need to go back to Eden. We need to go back to his mom and his dad, Adam and Eve. Now, we need to enter their story, not at the best moment, but at the worst moment. The worst moment is this. The damage in Genesis 3 is already done. Adam and Eve have just sinned. They have just shaken hands with the devil They have declared by their thinking and by their actions that they knew better than God himself, and they have now believed the lie that has been perpetuated in the human family from that moment forward, that we have the right and we need to be equal or above God himself. 
They have eaten from one of the two trees in the garden they are forbidden to touch, the tree of good and evil. And now their eyes are open. Innocence has been lost. And it reads like this in Genesis 3.8. Then Adam and his wife Eve heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the coolness of the day. And Adam and Eve hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to Adam, where are you? Well, he answered, oh, I heard you, God, in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. As I've preached before, the very first result of sinning was hiddenness. Shame and guilt and sin always long for shadow and darkness. Like an earthquake producing a tsunami, the damage is overwhelming, it is extensive, it is inescapable. At that moment, we as human beings become alienated from our creator. He says very candidly, God, I was afraid. That is the first time in human history that emotion had ever been felt. I was scared, and I was fearful, and I was terrified, and I was anxious, and I was troubled in my soul because I realized that I was naked, which meant I was guilty, and I was exposed. And so now I, in a primordial way, feel that I must hide from you. I must hide from love, and I cannot be around joy and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control, which you embody. I cannot be around that for some reason now. That, though, is good, and I know that you're a good, good father. I have to run in the opposite direction. I need to hide from love. And we've, of course, been hiding from God ever since. We try to God avoid God at any cost, The human family, as I've preached before, is filled with so many acts of spiritual hiding. We hide, the vast majority of human beings today on earth, hide from God through religion. We actually fundamentally believe that we are not hiding from God because we're running towards him, but religion teaches that we impress God and God gets impressed by us by what we do. Religion at its core is us proving to a holy God we're okay by what we do. It is hiddenness. And its other ugly twin sister is secularism, the declaration that we do not need God and we will build our own life and we will be the masters of our destiny. See, whether we are filling our life with sexual expression or money or relationships or power or education or invented spirituality, trying to make purpose of life, trying to have our souls find rest again, whether the things we are filling our life with are good or bad or neutral, they all fall short in the end, for they are all acts of hiding when they are used to replace walking with God in a personal way. What folly and what lunacy and what hubris to think that we as humans can flee from God and hide. How sad to think that we must hide from God. How terrifying that we think it is better for us to be alone and not with him. The scriptures always declare, can I hide from your presence? Can any of us hide from our creator? Of course not. Never miss when God comes in this story. God comes in the coolness of the day, an ancient way of saying evening. It was Augustine that wrote these words so long ago. It is fitting that God comes towards evening. That is when the sun was already setting for them. That is when the interior light of truth was now being taken from them. They heard his voice and they hid from his sight. Who hides from the sight of God? But he who has abandoned God and now is beginning to love what is his own. For they are now clothed with a lie 
And he who speaks of a lie speaks from what is his own. Hence, whoever turns away from that truth towards himself, rejoicing not in God who rules and enlightens all, but rather in his own seemingly free movements, always becomes dark like evening. God utters these words. Adam, who told you? Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? Oh, and the response, which we've all smiled at before. The man said, ah, the woman. It's her fault. It's always her fault. You put her in the garden with me. She gave me the fruit, and I ate it. Suddenly, it's not just alienation between us and our Creator. Suddenly, alienation splits between us in relationship. Adam blames Eve. If you read the story, Eve will blame Satan, and the list will go on and on. But the alienation is worse than we think because it's not just between us and God, and it's not now infecting and breaking up between each other. Actually, it says that the effects are worse because actually we will be alienated from creation, the physical world we live in itself. God says in verse 17 in chapter 3, Cursed cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all your days. It will produce thorn and thistle for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. And so alienation goes up, down, and sideways, and death enters the world for the first time, and yet God. God, so full of love, wanting and knowing at his core that he has determined within his sovereignty to make all things right, does something that most of us, when we read the accounts of Scripture, view as judgment and we miss it as mercy. He outright removes Adam and Eve from the garden because he so loves them, he never wants them to eat from the other tree. See, the tree of good and evil was there not to make them sort of tempted. It was there so they could know they were human. Choice is inherently human, but now in this broken, alienated, sinful, damned state, if they walked across the garden and ate from the tree of life, there would be no redemption. There would be no coming back. There would be an eternal brokenness, a living hell that could never, ever be snatched back. And so God, out of love, as a good, good father, removes the human family from damnation. Genesis 3.24, and so he drove, he forced us out, and he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden angels, cherubim, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way back to Eden. No, to guard the way back to the tree of life. And it is here. It is here with that background, now the story begins to unfold, and the birth of the family takes place. It says in Genesis 4-1, these words, Adam made love to his wife Eve. She became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. And for the first time in human history, a person declared these words, with the help of God, I have brought forth a man. Adam was made from dust, Eve was made from Adam, but now this is so profound, so beautiful. Now a man and a woman with different roles come together, mutually dependent on each other and dependent on God, and they now imitate their creator, and they now bring life. And notice that Eve says, I have not had a boy child, I have brought forth a man. This is the beginning of the family. It says later she gave birth to his brother, Abel. Now Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. The stage is now set. 
Cain continues in his father's trade. He works the ground. He becomes the first farmer. Abel becomes a shepherd, the first in the long line of shepherds we'll read about in Hebrews 11. Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, and of course, Jesus, our great high priest and our shepherd. It says, in the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to God. Abel also brought offerings, fat portions from son of the firstborn of his lambs, of his flock. I want you to catch the scene, especially if you've done church for a long time. Two brothers. Two brothers at worship. Eden is off limits, but God still can be known and encountered because God has chosen not to restrict himself to Eden. Have you ever thought about that? Thank God he stepped out of Eden to keep meeting us. Now everything looks right at this moment. Both bring an offering. Both bring a tribute to the true king. Both are declaring that they are not the creator and they are created by this offering. Both, notice very carefully, are worshiping not only the same God, they are both worshiping the right God. They are not worshiping a false God, a demon, a fallen spirit. They are not worshiping animals or anything in creation. Both are functionally at this moment, and most of us who have grown up in church have never caught this, both Abel and Cain are functioning as priests before God. And it would seem that both want to honor God. Now, the only difference is they bring different offerings that are connected to their job. One brings vegetables, produce. The other brings some young lambs. Now, at this moment, there is no sense within the text that one is better, one is worse, one is inferior or superior. But then something happens. Something wrong happens. Everything looks right, seems right, is functionally right, but something is wrong The Lord looked with favor, notice closely please, on Abel and his offering. But on Cain and his offering, oh, he did not look with favor. Do you hear the power of the words? Favor. God, like he walked with Adam and Eve, walked once again. He is present in this moment. He is there. And it says that God liked, God regarded, God preferred, God accepted Abel and Abel's offering, but he did not accept Cain and Cain's offering. Yes to Abel, no to Cain. But the question is why? Now, if you've done church for a while, you've heard a lot of ideas, I'm sure. One of them was that God liked the smell of Abel's sacrifice better than Cain's. I'm not so sure. Other people say, no, no, this is the beginning of the whole sacrificial system. We know that without the shedding of blood, it says in Hebrews 9, there is no forgiveness of sins. This is the very first beginning that will become the tabernacle and the temple. And, and Abel brings a sacrifice of a lamb and, and, and Cain doesn't. That's why, well, sort of. And yet the problem with that is there's no reference here to this being a sin offering or about sin at all. And the Bible does not make any reference saying one has a better quality than another. So the question we need to ask, because remember what this series is about. We are to be inspired by and live a life like Abel. So what's the difference between Abel and Cain? Well, first of all, it says this. You've probably caught it. Abel brought the first fruits or the first amount of his sacrifice to God, and Cain did not. Abel brought the best And the beginning, as we read through scripture from Genesis all the way to the end, this idea of giving to God, we've done it this morning in the north, you will, you're about to do this. I want everyone to catch this. 
The idea of tithing before offering is this, that you are, we are commanded to bring our first and our best towards God. We believe as Christians, God goes, God owns everything. We're just stewards of his stuff. And we are supposed to bring the first 10% of what we have in time, in money, in resources, and we joyfully give it to God. Abel does this, Cain does not. But second, it's not just about this. It's not just about this. It's about the motive behind it. We as human beings, especially in our culture and even now with social media, we continually look at the surface. People look at product and production, but God always starts with the heart and the motive. God wants to know why it is being done. So God meets them, and he looks at Abel and says, yes. He looks at Cain and he says, no. And we don't know what happened to Abel in that moment, but we sure know what happened to Cain. It says in verse 5, Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Anger and sadness and depression and dejection. Cain lost his temper. Cain begins to sulk. Have you ever seen a child sulk before in the corner? Now, this moment of perceived rejection is going to set the stage for the very first murder in history. So God comes to Cain You have in one space creator and created, potter and clay. Just like Eden, he meets with Cain like he met with Adam and Eve. And God comes close to Cain, who he loves. And he says to Cain these words, Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? Why are you acting like this? Why are you blaming? Why are you having a temper tantrum? I'm confused. Cain, look at me. You who are a parent, you ever had to take the the bottom of the chin of a child and lift it up? Look at me. If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? This is it. If you're getting bored, don't get bored. Accepted. Not just your offering. You will be accepted. See, something is now wrong between Cain and God, and something is right between Abel and God. God comes close to Cain. God comes close to the one he loves. God comes close to a human being made in his image, and he says, Cain, if you love me, if your outward expression is matched by inward love, if you have a devoted and obedient heart, see, if this isn't just a show... Or it's what your family does, like Adam and Eve do it, and Abel does it, so I need to do it. It's inherited faith. If it's not just duty, or a game, or a performance, but it is worshipped, worship will you not be accepted. Now that word accepted, I need to sit on it for a moment. I mean, is this not what we all want? To be accepted, I mean really, really accepted. I mean to be loved, to be established, to be welcomed, to be received. Is there nothing more powerful for us as human beings is to walk into a place and know that we are accepted no matter who we are or where we... God says, do you not know that this is what I want? Cain, you are made to walk with me and I want to walk with you. And this is the moment I'm giving... You know what to do. Do not play this game. It says in Proverbs 15.8, God hates, God vomits, God detests the sacrifice, the right sacrifices of wicked people, but the prayer of the upright pleases him. In 1 John 3.12, it says, do not be like Cain if you're a Christian, 
who belonged to the evil one and would murder his brother. And why did Cain murder his brother? Because his own actions, his heart was evil and his brothers were righteous. See, before the murder that we're about to get to, and before Satan took hold of Cain, Cain's actions were already tainted. His heart was not right. I love when I discovered this this week. One person said these words, Cain's sin is tokenism. He looks religious, but in his heart he is not dependent on God. He is not childlike, and by the way, he is not grateful at all. So everything looks right. Worshiping the right God, honoring God by giving, standing in as a priest, acknowledging by worship that he is not God and God is God, but his actions are not matched by right attitude. Now God knowing that history is literally about to repeat itself once again, knowing that evil was stalking and coming close again, knowing that that ancient snake, the great enemy of the human family and the resistor of God was going to speak now to the children of Adam and Eve, God gives a loving but stern warning directly to Cain. If you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your personal door, Cain. It desires to have you, but you, Cain, you must rule over it. Now, as I was studying this week, I've preached this passage, but I have never seen this before. That phrase right there, crouching at the door, is not just metaphorical. In the Hebrew language, in all the languages that would pop up in and around the Jewish community, in Mesopotamia, Babylon, etc., this is a very clear reference to something. In Babylonian mythology and all the communities around, that phrase, crouching at the door, is a direct reference to a demon that people were scared of that lived outside of your door, that if you crossed the threshold of your door, would kill you and eat you. And so this is what God is saying. This brings so much more depth to this passage. God is saying to Cain, the snake is waiting for you. The snake that spoke to your parents, that led them to death, is waiting for you. He is urged towards you. He is longing to have you like he had them. The snake is now speaking like he did to your mom and dad. Have you not learned, Cain? Was it worth it? Have you been back to Eden's door that you cannot now go into? Have you not heard your mom and dad reminisce how things were before the snake, before the fruit, before the lie, when perfection and unity and non-alienation was? Cain, do not give in. Do not give in. Rule over this. See, that's it. Even in this moment of brokenness, there's choice. Yes, we as human beings are totally depraved. That means that sin has affected and marred everything that makes us up. But we are not utterly depraved. We still have the ability to choose. This does not need to be inevitable. Well, what happens next? We're not told, but it's obvious that the temptation lingered and Cain lingered in it. You ever done that? You ever sat in something that you knew was wrong and you just chose to sit in it? The demon is now at the doorway and it's talking to Cain, pointing out how actually Cain is better than Abel. Don't you know that? And that God didn't really understand or God was really unfair and God isn't a good, good father. And what Cain offered was just as good or better. And then that little thought suddenly entered for the first time in the human family. From perceived loss of reputation to bad feelings, now to something called unbelief. The flames of bitterness and the power of jealousy and thoughts of violence spring up. A new craving happens in the human family. And Cain suddenly is told by the snake. And within himself, he believes that it is his right and it is his need 
to take justice into his own hands because he has been spurned. Eve was jealous of God. Eve was envious of God and now her son is the same over Abel. At this moment, we can see it's like a train coming. It's like the car running towards the robin, except the car doesn't stop. Sin is about to spill everywhere. If chapter 3 in Genesis is about, is the, is about the fall of humanity, chapter 4 is about the fall of the, the nuclear human family. This first expression of sibling rivalry is about to turn into something so much more. One scholar said this that I read this week. This is the first religious war in history. Cain is about to renounce God by attacking another person made in God's image, and it's all over the nature and the quality of worship. So a plan was hatched. Carefully thought out, Cain must act. It was his right. He needed to do it. And then these words we read so easily, but there's so much pain behind them. Cain said to his brother Abel, Hey, Abel, let's go out in the field. I'm sure he said, Sure, of course. And while they were in the field, Cain turned and attacked Abel and killed him. The shock, the question, the blood spilling, the scream, the question of it all, why are you doing this to me? This is not accident. This is not manslaughter. This is murder one with with intent. Now, Abel's name, I learned this week, means vapor and breath and fleeting. And so Abel's name is literally fulfilled. His life is fleeting, and he is the first one to lose his breath at the hands of another and not as his creator. I was shocked when I was doing research on murder this week. In 2010, the United Nations did a study. They have an office on drugs and crime. And they estimate that seven out of every 100,000 people on earth will be murdered. What Cain did in that moment has been a scourge on our family ever since. He snuffs out Abel, saying the deed is done. But God, God comes walking to talk to Cain. He comes back like he did with Adam into the garden, and he says to Cain, hey, Cain, where's your brother? I don't know, says Cain. It's like Cain looks into his creator's face and he outright lies. God, who's in all places, in all spaces. It's almost like he says, well, why are you asking me? Why don't you go find him? You're God. I'm busy. But the lie reveals the real battle. Hiddenness. It is a repetition of mom and dad all over again, hiding in the coolness of the day. And yet the question uttered from God's lips, we, we, we read it wrong. God is not being rhetorical. God is offering mercy. This is a God-given moment of opportunity for Cain to be honest, to confess, to find hope again, and even repentance. But Cain will not have it. Fear and apathy and outright rebellious pride have taken him. And so what does he do? He puffs up in front of God like his chest, trying to throw God off, by the, throw God off the scent by saying... Well, I don't know where he is. And then he utters the words that, of course, are found throughout all of literary history. Am I my brother's, what, keeper? The the words, I'm sure they just hung in the air. It's interesting. If we could read Genesis in in Hebrew together, the original language, 
this would actually strike us much more than it even does in English. Because we would know that this has already been used twice in the first three chapters, this very particular word, keeper. In in Genesis 2.15, it says that the Lord God took Adam and put him in the Garden of Eden and made him work it, and he took care of it. He kept it. He was its keeper. In Genesis 3.24, the verse I already read, where the angels block Adam and Eve from going back, they are called in Hebrew the keeper of the garden. Adam is the keeper of creation. Angels are the keeper of the gate of Eden. You're like, well, John, that's a fun fact. Why are you bring it up? Here's the difference. See, no one asked Cain to be his brother's keeper. Keeper doesn't just mean help and support. It means to control, to own, to exercise dominion or authority, or to exclude. You keep animals in a zoo. You keep prisoners in a jail. Yet Cain was not to be his brother's keeper. He was to be his brother, to love his brother and walk with his brother. And both were called to do their life beside each other. And both were called to look up and be kept by God. Cain looks at his creator and says, I'm not responsible for him. It's like it begins in that moment. The ugly effects of estrangement from God and each other, the wounds not visible to human eyes, begin to mark our soul. I love when one person so poetically writes, violence harms the one it does, the one who does it as much as the one who receives it. You can cut a tree down with your axe. Wood is soft compared to steel, but the sharp steel is dulled by as, as it chops. The sap of the tree will rust and pit the steel. The mighty axe does violence against the helpless tree, and it is harmed by it, yes, but so, so the opposite is true. And it's the same with people, though the harm is done in the spirit. Cain's words are still hanging in the air. Creator created potter clay. I wonder when, if Cain looked down when he said it or looked away, or walked away. But then God, God speaks. And this is what he says. What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Like this is the emotion of a parent who suddenly finds out their teenager has done something so wrong and the police are at the door and it's the mom crying out, why have you done this to our family? To yourself, why have you done this? Don't you understand? Why are you so foolish? And at the same time, it's not just distressed, broken parent, it is judge. God's righteous anger is on display. Cain, you think you can keep secrets? Do you not know who I am? You think there's no witness to this first crime? There is not one witness. There is two. For as I am God, I am Elohim and Yahweh. I witnessed, I was there when you picked up the rock and you killed him. But not only am I witness. Your brother's blood that you think is gone is literally crying out to me for vindication. Blood guilt is on your hands. It is all over you. Oh yes, you've buried his body. You've washed the blood off. You've burned the clothes. But the blood of Abel, it's still all over you. Cain, you chose the snake over the Savior. You have eaten the forbidden fruit thinking you can be me and you will never be me. You never had this right. So now, Cain, because you did not listen, but your brother did You now, like your parents, are under a curse, and you will be driven from the ground, which opens its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. 
You are now going to be forced to wander for food. You're banned from the soil. You've just lost your job. You've just lost your family. And you've just lost your security. You will become a wandering fugitive. You will be rootless and detached. Remember I said to you, I wanted to accept you. There will now be no peace. No shalom. There will, no, there, there will be no stability. There is no place like home. Adam and Eve, when they were removed from the garden, they did not debate it. And yet, Cain will. You know, it's amazing if you know your Bible, the power of this, because it's like with the temple and the tabernacle, Adam and Eve were actually in the Holy of Holies and they were kicked out, but Cain is now removed from the camp. He's outside of the people. Cain said to God, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you're driving me from the land and I'll be hidden from your presence and I will be a restless wanderer and whoever finds me, oh, here, let me paraphrase, will do the same thing I just did. You know what's so profound about this? Cain never says sorry. He never repents. Never confesses. He says, it's just too much. I don't have a job anymore. And, and, and maybe someone's going to do something to me like I've just done. And there's just, it's just too much. He is more fearful of his standing than he is fearful of the God of heaven and earth. No guaranteed job. No relationship with you. No home. And someone's going to murder me. And I love this. But God said, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then God put a mark on Cain so no one who found him would kill him. It is like God tattooed Cain and all people knew this tattoo. It is terrible how this has been used in history to justify racism and slavery. But what is being said here is actually not that but mercy. God had mercy. See, God doesn't kill Cain. He had every right to. But here we begin to see already the seeds of law and grace. Sin is not ignored. Sin is not played down. Cain pays for his actions, but there is mercy. Church, always be in awe of God's mercy. On your worst day, God still has mercy for you. He has mercy on Cain and gives him protection. Now Hebrews 11 and the very short life of Abel only now can be understood with all of that. When we are reminded of Abel's mom and dad story, when we contrast Abel and Cain's story, do we now fully understand why Abel was placed in the great hall of faith, why he is included and actually talked about in the great cloud of witnesses? Now here's the question we need to ask. Not only what do we intellectually learn, oh, that was stimulated, I learned something new. No, no. What is God who walked with Cain and Abel, who is among us in this moment, saying to you personally, And saying to us as a church, well, the first thing we need to catch is this. This is one of the first foreshadows of the gospel. This is one of the very first foreshadows of the gospel. Abel loved the Father. Abel, his attitude before the Father is right. Abel walked with the Father. Abel's focus was the father. And though he was innocent, he was murdered for doing the right thing before the father. Here's the reality we need to grapple with. The author of Hebrews is about to tell us that we are all Cain and Jesus is the greater Abel. We as human beings, 
You know, there's that famous book by A.W. Tozer, Who Put Jesus on the Cross? Us. The Bible says we are all Cain, separated, twisted, secular, deeply religious, playing a game, segregated, always, and Jesus is the greater Abel. It says this in Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the living city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You, if you're a Christian, have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See, this is what we need to catch. Jesus is the greater Abel because Jesus, though he was innocent and was taken out for being innocent, he does not stay dead and his blood covers Cain every single time. And like in our community, we talk about all the time, this is why the gospel is so shocking and beautiful and countercultural because it says that religion and secularism is Cain at the same time. And yet Jesus comes and says, no, no, I've stood in the gap. And though I was taken out, I've conquered all this. And my blood speaks a better thing because my blood covers all sin. Let me ask you a question very candidly this morning. Do you know that you are Cain before God? Do you know that you need someone to stand in and cover your blood guilt? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, the better able. That is the mercy of God. We see it in the beginning. God redeems horrific situations, and even in that moment says to Cain, I'll have mercy. And he says to the human family, who all function like Cain, we all do. I will have such mercy. I will buy you back and make you my brother again. That's the beauty of our gospel. Have you received it? If not, I tell you, cry out to Jesus this day and say, cover me and make me clean. Now, if we are walking with him already, what is Jesus, the Lord of the church, in this moment? This is a holy moment. Do not get distracted. What is Jesus saying to C4 as a church in this moment? Well, number one, notice what the scriptures say. When faithfulness is right, God is at the center of worship. Abel looked at his creator. He loved his creator. His focus was on God and God alone. He had joy in worship, joy in relationship. He had joy in giving, and he had joy even in his job. Abel, in a broken, post-Eden world, shows us we still can have great joy when we walk with our creator ready and we choose not to hide from him. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering, and he was commended as righteous. But here's the real point. To be like Abel means we must not, as a church, ever be like Cain. Not positionally, but now in our worship. So let me ask some questions of us this morning, and they're very important. God is drawing close at this moment. This is not me just saying this pastorally to make a point. He is coming to us like he came to Cain, who he loved. Are you involved in tokenism? Is your worship tainted? 
Do you come singing to church and raising your hands or giving or listening to a sermon or going to connect group or serving inside the church or outside the church, but your life does not match your gift? Is your life and worship in contradiction? Your offering before God is right. You appear faithful to Jesus, but your life, your thoughts, your money, your sexual life, your relationships, your theology and your thinking directly contradict the God you know and you know it does. God says, I will not accept your offering then. God says, I will not accept it. The church would love the money, but I don't accept it. You cannot come on Sunday and live differently Monday through, th- Monday through Saturday. You cannot. If, if you are a Christian, Romans 12 says that our life is worship. Our bodies are actually the way we worship God. And he comes and says, for you, and I'm not saying it's a vast majority, for, for, for you though who are playing a game where you come and you pretend and you look religious, but you are not living a life of worship, he says you will have no rest. You will not find joy or acceptance. You will not feel comfortable in my presence. And I know that the game is a game. And God is saying to you at this moment, not out of holy wrath, he's saying this out of love, repent, I want you to have acceptance. If you are involved in tokenism, where you are play-acting, repent. The second thing that distinguishes Abel from Cain is this. Abel brought his first fruits and Cain did not. Is this you? Do you genuinely, systematically, with joy, with no compulsion, bring the best you have of your time and your money and your dreams to God himself? Are you stealing from the Lord? Because Cain stole from the Lord and Abel did not. We are called as Christians to joyfully, because we love God, joyfully because he's good and worthy, joyfully because we're so shocked at his grace towards us, give and give and give till it hurts. Why? Not only because we owe it to God and we love him, it curbs the seed that killed Cain called coveting. Yes, we are commanded, commanded, commanded to give 10% of our money to kingdom endeavors. If you're not doing it, it's stealing from the Lord. It is. And if you're not there yet, begin to work that out. But what is at the heart of this is this spiritual discipline of bringing our best to God is given to us so we will not violate the last commandment in the Ten Commandments called coveting. See, this brings us to our third thing. Where is your focus as a follower of Christ. Are you looking sideways? Or are you looking up? Cain began to crumble when he looked sideways. See, the snake is still whispering very loud at church. He's crouching at your door, your family's life, this church, and he says, look at that other person. God loves them more than you. God hates you, don't you know? Why does God give that person those spiritual gifts or that amount of money or that home or why did they get married and you haven't been married or why did your marriage fail but their marriage on that? God doesn't love you. You need to take control even though you know God. You need to take control. You need to get justice now. Don't trust God because he doesn't love you. He's not a good father. Don't trust God. He will not come through for you. Jealousy and bitterness and greed and coveting Being unhappy or miserable or angry or being critical of others and wanting what you do not have is your right, the snake says. 
But this always leads to recklessness and greed. Comparisons kill literally. Coveting leads to greed, which leads to stealing. Coveting leads to anger, which leads to murder. Coveting leads to lust, which leads to adultery. Holy history is full of the examples of those who have been felled by the persuasive power of looking sideways and not up. And the loss every single time. There are people in our church that will tell you this. It's loss, alienation, rootlessness with God and others. Now I want to end just by saying this. This message is not given with a wagging finger. This message is not given as a slap in the face. And nor am I making some assumption that we're all this. I'm not. But I do want to say this. We are invited to walk with God through Jesus like Adam and Eve did, right? And we have experienced love, eternal life, forgiveness of sins, the hope of resurrection, the ability to forgive others. We are children of God. We sang about it down here, at least in this context. I am no longer a slave to what? Fear. I'm a child of God. That only becomes true when we stop being like Cain. And so God is coming close like he did to Cain, and he is saying to all sorts of us, you don't need to do this game called tokenism. No, no, no. No. I'll let you live a holy life. Now begin to ask me. To others of you, you say, no, 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 just bring your best. I will provide. Test me and see. Am I not a good father? Do not steal from me, for I am God and I love you. And he's saying to all sorts of us, this has been the one for me this week, do not look sideways and get involved in coveting because when you covet and your eyes are taken off the living God of heaven and earth, it always leads to death. Could we just pray these prayers? Oh God of heaven and earth, who has given us the inspiration of the life of Abel. Number one, we who are Christians, thank you. Thank you that you, Jesus, are the better Abel and you've covered us positionally. Thank you. But right now, Holy Spirit, come. In Jesus' name, come right now with me, all those leading worship in both sites, all of us, come. We will not hide from you. Come. If, if some of us are involved in tokenism, convict us. If some of us, we are willingly, knowingly stealing, convict us. Come right now among us and convict us of our coveting and our, and our greed. Just do this among us, we pray, so we can be free and we don't need to hide. Jesus, set this church continually free, we ask. We ask this in the name of Jesus, who is a better able, whose blood promises us freedom. Can everyone say amen to that this morning? Let's stand for our Lord and let us worship him right. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.